scriptures and open with me to Matthew chapter 15. We'll be looking at the first 20 verses there as we continue our our way through Matthew's gospel. In searching for God Knows What, that's the name of the book, Searching for God Knows What, Donald Miller tells of a lecture he delivered to students at a Christian college in which he told them he was going to present the gospel. He described the rampant sin that our culture is plagued with, with homosexuality and abortion and drug use and so on. He was explicit about the wages of sin being death. He talked about teen pregnancy and STDs and all the supporting statistics that go along with that. He described how this sin separates us from God. And he spoke of what he called the beauty of living God's way, telling stories and citing examples of righteous living. He explained repentance and how their lives could be God-honoring and God-centered, detailing out the greatness of heaven. Describing what happens when he finished the lecture, Miller writes this, I rested my case and asked the class if they could tell me what I'd left out of the gospel presentation. Do you know? He presented the gospel and never mentioned Jesus. And nobody noticed. I had a mentor once tell me years and years ago, and it just stuck with me, it's a very simple thing. Blake, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. However, isn't that what we struggle with? Keeping the main thing, Jesus, the main thing. That's apparently a struggle that the Pharisees had because they couldn't keep the main thing the main thing. They were always on tertiary things. They'd lost their way and gotten consumed and distracted by these secondary issues, by rituals and traditions, and in turn, the only one true religion in the whole entire world into a false one. Let's look at chapter 15, starting in verse 1, and see how Jesus confronts these Pharisees of the false religion. God's word says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother shall surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what would you have gained for me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. 
It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying this? He answered them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and it is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Please pray with me. Father God, Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us understand this wonderful word you have for us this morning, the depth of which just keeps going and going. Lord, we ask that you soften our hearts and open our minds and help change our hearts by the power of your word and your word alone. In Jesus' name, amen. In the last two narratives that we've been studying before this, Jesus has pointed to himself first as the only true God, through feeding the 5,000, if you remember. Then last week, if you remember, he taught on what true faith looks like by walking on water. This week, he's going to show what true religion looks like. What does true religion look like by confronting the Pharisees? Jesus, along the way, has been, confront, been confronting the Pharisees, and they've been coming and confronting him in, in the local settings that he's in. But here we see, in verse 1, that, that now Jerusalem gets involved. The headquarters, if you will, sends a delegation to him up there on the Sea of Galilee. And they want to investigate this Jesus. And through this encounter, Jesus exposes how their false religion had become and what it had become. Because first of all, true religion has a high view of Scripture. True religion has a high view of Scripture. Let me ask you a question. What guides your life? What's what's the rudder of your life? For some, it is an internal morality. This week, I, I got a call from a man, kind of a random call. He asked me if I was Blake Brown. I said, yeah. And he said, are you going to be outside your house in a few minutes? I said, I could be. He said, I'll be right there. Okay. So I go outside in my house. I'm waiting and up pulls uh, a big red truck, a, a Goodwin construction truck. And he says, look in the back. And I look in the back of this big pickup truck and, you know, I'm going like this. And it's full of stuff. And I say, well, there's a lot of stuff back here. He, go, he reaches in and he goes, 
does this look familiar? And he pulls out my chainsaw. And I go, well, that looks like my chainsaw. And he says, it is your chainsaw. I checked the serial number with the chainsaw uh, company, and this is your chainsaw. It was stolen. I had no idea that my chainsaw was stolen. I thought it was in my garage. But this guy had found the chainsaw, looked it up, and returned it to me. A good moral guy. We had a really good discussion. I, I couldn't tell whether he was a believer or not, but... If if he wasn't, he was just a good moral guy. And he felt good about bringing back to me something that I had lost. A lot of people live that way. A lot of people live their life guided by just good moral and internal convictions. For some, it's a philosophy, like Buddhism or New Age. For some, it is what I call buffet religion. You know, take a little from here, a little from there, a little from here. We see that a lot these days. For the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, you would think that what was guiding their life was scripture, but it wasn't. You'd think that it was the Torah, what we call the Old Testament, but it wasn't. It was, and you can see it right here in verse 2, it was, and you can underline this, the tradition of the elders, the tradition of of the elders. This delegation noticed that Jesus' disciples were not doing the ritual hand washing before meals. So they ask, why do you break the tradition of the elders? They're, they're confronting him on why Jesus is breaking the traditions. A serious, serious infraction. Now, to understand that, you have to understand that the Jewish leaders at the time were guided by this tradition of the elders. It had become sacred. It had become equal with Scripture. And the history of this goes all the way back to when, when Moses was given the Ten Commandments, or so they say, on, on Mount Sinai. He was given the Ten Commandments, but then he was also given some oral tradition along with it while he was up there. And that oral tradition was handed down, handed down. And in the second century before Christ, it was written down in what they call and we know as the Mishnah or the Midrash, these oral traditions, these traditions of the elders. And what happened over time is this Mishnah became authoritative, equal with Scripture. Keeping the traditions of the elders was so serious that Rabbi Eleazar, who lived at Jesus' time, said this, if anyone expounds the Scripture in opposition to the tradition of the elders, they would have no place in the world to come. No salvation. And this Mishnah had about 65 pages dedicated to ritual hand washing. 65 pages on how to, to purify yourself externally before you eat. That's why the Pharisees were were so appalled at what he was teaching his disciples not to do. And Jesus is equally appalled. You can see it here that they would think that the tradition of the elders is authoritative. So he shows them their drift from the lone authority by questioning their tradition. One of their traditions was called Korban. Korban. This is the tradition that he is challenging here. 
Corban stated that if you had money or property and you dedicated it to God, you could dedicate it to God, and thus it released you from any responsibility to anything else, including your parents. So if a son did not want to support their parents, he could declare his finances korban, and he didn't have to obey the fifth commandment. You know the fifth commandment. He quotes it here. Honor your father and mother. See, the fifth commandment is not just for those under 18. We all realize that, right? It's just not for, oh, well, once I leave home, I'm okay, I'm out. No, when you're young, you fulfill the the fifth commandment by obeying your parents. Maybe when you're a teenager, you honor the fifth commandment by not only obeying, but, but respecting your parents, showing them honor. When you're in college, you fulfill the fifth commandment maybe by just communicating with your parents. <laughs> My daughter is leaving for college in 20 days. When married, you fulfill this commandment by bringing, maybe bringing your grandkids to see your parents, their grandkids. As you grow older, you honor them by both physically and financially helping them. See, honoring never stops. But Korban made it possible. And that's what Jesus shows them in verses 3 through 6. How can you do this? You're going against the, the scriptures. He says, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles your father and mother must surely die. That's how serious this commandment is. He's underlining that, underscoring that. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you have gained for me is given to God, Korban, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you made void the word of God. He ends by condemning them as hypocrites. They, they, they dress and they say that they honor the Torah. Yet they have this other tradition that is equal. So he quotes Isaiah 29. He says, this is for you. The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Blaise Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and so cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Isn't that true? We see this rather obviously, rather obviously, with the Catholic Church, don't we? Where prayers to to Christ have been supplanted with prayers to the saints. Equal. Where Mary, who is is blessed among women, has been first given immaculate conception, and now she's co-redeemer with Christ. With the Pope, who, who when he speaks ex cathedra from the chair, his teachings are as authoritative as the Word of God. They think they are doing the will of God. They're doing evil. And we have traditions too. 
You can't just point the finger. I mean, as silly as it sounds, sometimes how you dress. And certainly the music in church, what type of music. Or perhaps, perhaps it's a certain confession of faith that, that creeps up. Could it be equal to God and God's word? Or perhaps in, in the celebrity culture that we're in, it's, it's a, a certain pastor in his works and writings and teachings. People like C.S. Lewis or J.I. Packer or John Calvin or John Piper or Tim Keller. We've got to guard our hearts with this, brothers and sisters. Nothing they say or write nor any interpretation of Scripture comes close to the power and authority of God's Word. Not even close. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, literally, what we have here is breathed out by God. It's His, His Word by breath. God's word is the only and ultimate authority in our lives and is the only foundation for any true religion. An unknown author wrote this. The Bible is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the joy of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be safe. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, the Christian's character. Herein, paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and his glory its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, guide the feet, Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of treasure. Follow its precepts and it will lead you to Calvary, to an empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, and yes, even to glory itself in eternity. We must reclaim, even in our own hearts, brothers and sisters, reclaim the cry of the Reformation, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone. Secondly, true religion not only has a high view of scripture, it also has a high view of sin we see here. Psychiatrist Scott Peck, before he was a Christian, he wrote about meeting with a depressed 15-year-old named Bobby who seemed increasingly troubled by the suicide of his 16-year-old brother who committed suicide by shooting himself with a 22. Peck tried to probe Bobby's mind but got nowhere. Searching for ways to establish a bond, he asked Bobby what he had received from his parents for Christmas. A gun, Bobby said. Peck was stunned. He asked, what kind? A twenty-two, 
more stunned. He asked, how did it make you feel to get the same kind of gun your brother killed you with, killed himself with? To which the boy said, it wasn't the same kind of gun. It was the same gun. Bobby had been given a Christmas present by his parents of the gun his brother used to kill himself. When Peck met with the parents, he was struck by their deliberate deliberate refusal to acknowledge any wrongdoing there. Two decades later, after he became a Christian, Peck wrote about this encounter and he said this, One thing has changed in 20 years. I know how Bobby's I know now that Bobby's parents were evil. I didn't know it then because I had no vocabulary for it. The Bible gives us a vocabulary for sin. It's called total depravity. The Bible tells us insists that we have a problem that it cannot be dealt with by washing the outside. You see, the Pharisees were consumed with external purity. And Jesus teaches in verses 10 and 11, it's not outside in, it's inside out. If you look there, he says he called his disciples, the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth That defiles a person. Sin is not on the outside and you clean it by cleaning the outside. It's on the inside. Sin is not something external you can wash away. Sure, we see sin in in various ways. We do. I mean, it it displays itself externally by a, by a, a, a swear word or a gossip or an adulterous affair. It shows itself that way. But that is just a presenting symptom, as the doctors say. The real virus is inside. It comes from the inside out. And no amount of scrubbing, no amount of ritual purification can wash it away because sin is in the heart. This is what Jesus explains when Peter asks him to clarify in verses 15 through 20. If you look there, Peter came to him and said, explain the parable to us. And he says, are you still without understanding? Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat in unwashed hands does not defile anyone. All false religions teach outside in. All false religions teach outside in. Clean up your behavior. Do the right thing. Act this way. Watch what you say. Feed the poor. Give generously. Bow three times a day. Do these seven sacraments. The false religion of secular humanism tells us educate, 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 right? That's the solution. Just educate. 
D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, once said, if a man is stealing nuts and bolts from a railway track and in order to change him, you send him to college, at the end of his education, he'll steal the whole railway track. Why don't these work? Why doesn't education solve it? Why doesn't external washing solve things? Why doesn't philanthropy? Because the problem is inside. It's not outside. Scripture tells us this over and over and over again. In Psalm 51, we read, Surely I was sinful when? About 19? No. From birth. Psalm 58 goes on to say, even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they were wayward. Romans 3 tells us all have turned aside. No one does good. No, not one. And Jeremiah puts a very, very fine point on it in his 17th chapter when he writes, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Who can trust it? The rhetorical question there begs, nobody can trust it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The heart is the problem. Out of the heart comes evil. In Jewish thought, the heart was, was the seat of emotion and will. It was, it was what generated the desires in your behavior. And true religion has a high view of where that sin is. In the heart. Inside. That's where the problem lies. We believe that the heart is sick with sin. That it cannot help but produce the sin that Jesus lists here. So what are we to do? What are we to do? That leads us to our last point. True religion has a heart that is changed. True religion has a heart that's been changed. A man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake and he dropped it into the glass cage where the snake was sleeping in the corner on top of the sawdust. The tiny mouse had a serious problem on his hands. At any moment, he could be swallowed alive. So we quickly set to work covering the snake in sawdust chips. Covering the snake till the snake was covered. With that, the mouse apparently thought it solved the problem. However, the snake is still there, isn't it? The danger is still real. It's just, just covered up. The solution, however, came from the outside. The man took pity on the poor white mouse and removed him from the cage. The solution to the mouse's problem came from the outside. See, brothers and sisters, there's two ways to live in the world. You can live by by covering up your evil hearts. By, By taking the sawdust and covering up that snake, put a thin veneer of morality on the outside and expect the danger to go away. But the sin snake is still there. It's your heart. 
Or, there's a second way to live. And that is to admit that we need help from the outside. I can't do this. And that's the, what's unique about the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. That's what's unique about the Christian faith. The solution does come from the outside. God, in his amazing mercy, looked down into the glass cage and saw you and saw me and saw what danger we were in. And so he sent his one and only son into that cage to live the perfect life that we cannot live, not to show us how to be a better person, not so we can go, ah, that's how you do it. No, so that we could be a different person. And he went to the cross taking the death penalty that our sin deserved. He took us out of the cage and he took the bite from the snake. Not to change our behavior, but to change our hearts. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we could have a new heart and a new life and a new future and a new hope. And a couple of the most extraordinary chapters in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36 and 37, Ezekiel says this. He prophesies, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When you admit that you need a Savior, when you say, I can't do it, when you say, I'm in serious trouble, I've got this huge snake over here that I keep covering up, but it keeps uncovering. When you say, help, that's when God comes in. And that's what's unique about our faith, brothers and sisters. He promises to give you a new heart. And if you've, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have a heart of flesh. You have a new heart, so to speak. You have a new seat that has new desires. And it shows itself. Not perfectly, but it shows itself. It doesn't mean you stop sinning and become perfect. No. In fact, a transformed heart by the gospel says, I am a sinner, but I'm forgiven. You see, a heart of flesh is radically different than a heart of stone. A heart of stone says, I'm not that bad. A heart of flesh says, I'm worse than you think. A heart of stone tries to hide their sin. A heart of flesh says, here I am. A heart of stone says, I can't believe I did that again. A heart of flesh says, that's who I am, really. A heart of stone says, I'll do better next time. A heart of flesh says, Jesus did better already. A heart of stone says, I can't believe you did that. You know what a heart of flesh says? I do that all the time. A heart of stone seeks revenge. A heart of flesh recalls God's mercy they've received. A heart of stone is independent. I can do this. 
a heart of flesh clings to Christ. A heart of stone seeks to save themselves. And a heart of flesh says Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. A heart of stone glorifies self. A heart of flesh seeks to glorify God. A heart of flesh, as Tim Keller says, a heart of stone, as Tim Keller says, says, I broke God's rules. A heart of flesh says, I broke God's heart. Brothers and sisters, those are the marks of somebody who has been changed from the inside out and has a new heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us, corrects us, admonishes us, challenges us, encourages us. Lord, may your word do its work in our hearts this morning and change them even more if they've already been changed. And if there are those among us that have never known the wonderful change that Jesus brings. May this word bring that change. In Jesus' name, amen.